Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Sky Kids' Lucy Murphy about the UK Satcaster's new COP26-focused documentary ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference. Off the Fence is Bo Steemeyer and Imelda Weber's on Setting Up Shop in Canada and Lineup Industries' Ed Lewis and Julian Curtis plus Starling Television's Chris Phillip reflect on last week's MIPCOM. COP26 In Your Hands is a 30-minute documentary produced by Fresh Start Media for Sky Kids, in which six young climate activists from six different continents deliver a powerful message about how climate change is already having an impact on their lives. The documentary premiered on Sky Kids and Sky's streaming platform now on Monday, ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference, which starts at the end of this month. Sky Kids Director of Content Lucy Murphy spoke to Carolina Kaminska about the programme and its role in delivering a call to action. Do you want to tell me about COP26 in your hands? Give me a, a bit of an overview about what it's about. Sure. So it's a really important film for us and the audience, actually. It follows the stories of six really passionate climate activists. In all, There's one from each of the six habitable continents in the world talking about climate change in a really tangible way and explaining how climate change is impacting them now, their lives. It's not something that is happening in the future and that we need to prepare for. It's something that is actually happening now. And I think when you hear from those kids and you go with Keenan in um, Indonesia, when you, he shows you flooded the flooded buildings and he says, my country is sinking, the city is sinking, it makes it incredibly impactful. So we, we knew in the lead up to COP26 that we'd like to be doing something. So when Fresh Start brought us this um, idea, we just immediately said, yes, it chimed so well with what we try and do, which is to tell stories that mean something that children are interested in, but in a way that is right for them. And ideally through the sort of experiences and voices of children themselves, rather than adults talking to children about, you know, climate change in a pedagogical way, we, we try and do shows that are very sort of alert to the fact that kids themselves are passionate and knowledgeable and engaged in this. And I think that it inspires more curiosity from the audience in the same way that our week news show we managed to involve so many kids because we film remotely and we get kids a really wide geographical and social spread of contributors with this one (laughs) the production challenge was enormous you know how do you sustainably go and create a show that is featuring stories from six continents and not add to the carbon footprint so working with fresh start and the way that they managed to find local crews and source children who you know we had a a pickup line that needed to be done and they managed to get someone to sort of cycle into the rainforest and take the pickup line on an iphone and then go back to the nearest place with wi-fi and send it to us so it was you know those local networks and filming locally was a massive part of this project for us and it just goes to show you don't need to be sending crews and teams all around the world there are really good local people who can do that for you and local kids who can find a way to get their story across. You know, one of the sort of really 
real advantages of working with a company like Sky is that we don't exist in isolation. So that ability to link up with news and with some of our big corporate initiatives like Sky Zero and the sponsorship of part of FOP26, it's just really amazing for us to be able to to do that work across the company. And we're really excited not only to hear the story from these kids, but to hear the response from the world leaders when they gather in Glasgow to really, you know, are they listening? And that's a question that the children in the film ask all the way through of the adults in the room. You know, this is happening now. We're living through it. We're experiencing this not as an abstract, but as part of our everyday life. And not to put too fine a point on it, are you listening to us? Prince Charles kindly contributed to this. And um, Boris Johnson has also filmed a sequence for it. So we've managed to access and present, I hope, a very engaging film that will encourage children that they are being listened to. And so how important do you think it is to raise awareness of climate change and other environmental issues through kids TV, as opposed to the the typical happy, lighthearted content that that we would normally associate with with children's TV? Well, we try and do both. We, We have a huge amount of content for kids, ranging from drama to cartoons. But we do also have a really good programme of news and current affairs that we've been running for the last three years. So we have a weekly news show. And again, that is presented by kids. And we listen to kids. Of course, it covers all the big stories of the week, but it also covers issues that we know mean a lot to them. Um, Whether that's bullying or knife crime or racism, it's all of these topics. If we're going to raise a generation of children who are confident and able to take their part in society, they have to know about all these things. But I feel very passionately that we have to do it in the right way. I was very struck when I read some research after 9-11, where, of course, every single household and every single television had rolling news coverage of a really shocking, awful event. And people were not aware of the impact that was having on children. And those news stories that were being told real time and in rolling news were not, the the impact on children was very severe. And I actually read something about one child who was very young, um, admittedly, but because that image of towers collapsing got repeated every day, he thought every day another building fell down. And it's you sort of have to really think of news events through the eyes of a child to be able to tell a story in the way that they can digest the information. So it's something we feel really passionately about. And that's why we've had the news show. We've had the current affairs and issues-based programming. And it's a fantastic example of how Sky Kids can work hand in hand with Sky News. And with COP26, we work with Sky Zero as well. We could join up and do something together. And so what sort of demand are you seeing for kind of programming um, covering themes and issues like like climate change um, among children and teenagers? Before we started this interview, you were telling me that it's quite a big concern among children. It is. It's a really big concern for children. And climate is always top of the list of things that children want to talk about and that are, you know, concerned about. And it's a very real concern. After all, it's their future. (laughs) It's not ours. 
it's it's their future. So we're always very attuned to that. We try and talk to our audience as much as we can. So we really did want to do something. We also work really closely with, we have FYI news groups in schools um, and we know there's a huge demand for, from teachers for really fantastic premium quality programming that's very current. So we our news show goes into schools um, every week so that it can be used as part of lesson plans. So I think the demand is there from lots of different angles really it's there from schools it's there from children themselves and it's also there from parents who again are very clued in now I think to the fact that news for children made for children is a better way than just sort of looking over the shoulder and watching adult stories which maybe don't dig into uh, an issue in terms of starting from the beginning or sort of unpicking it a little bit and explaining it in the right way for children. And what about demand from broadcasters and platforms? What's what I mean as a broadcaster yourself how much of this sort of content are are you looking for and what sort of consensus are you seeing from your peers? Um, Well we're certainly seeing more pitches coming in. I can't speak for other broadcasters. Um, I don't know what they get but if it's anything like us we do see a lot more program suggestions and pitches coming in which focus on sort of news and current affairs and I think climate is something that's being tackled in many different ways and it doesn't have to be a program or a a, you know news or current affairs program there are other ways that we can create those kind of meaningful and actionable changes in behavior and perception by threading stories into all types of genre. So I think that's something that's really interesting for us. And at Sky, we've been working with the Behavioural Insights team on what kind of small changes can we make to the content that we see on screens that is going to sort of introduce these sort of issues and give some very concrete suggestions um, without it being finger waggy or um, sort of you're now going to sit down and watch a documentary because lots of people don't watch documentaries. So threading that information into all types of programming is really, really interesting for program makers. So that's something that I think we're really looking at. And we've we've had something called the planet test, where whenever we commission something, looking to see are there positive stories about things that you can do? And, are, and actually is negative planet behaviour being called out? And that's something that if children and adults, to be frank, I mean, anybody, if anybody can sort of hear these bits of information without it feeling like they're sitting down and watching an educational show I think it's really interesting how far do you think it's acceptable to go when making content like this for children do you think that they you know how much can they handle when it comes to programs and documentaries with very serious tones and could there be an argument that that it's kind of burdening them with unnecessary worry that should be left to the adults it's a really valid point um, and it's something that we're absolutely sort of across when we're making shows and we know that that emotional load and the experience of sort of worry is something that is you know we want to avoid so we do talk about and we actually we talk about that in shows we have sections within our weekly news show where we talk about how to deal with worry and we've we've commissioned other shows that help to address that so I think anxiety is definitely on the rise but I I, I do believe that if children are 
a feeling control somehow that it really can impact that anxiety um, in a very positive way. And that's something that when you think about how confident children are in their role as citizens nowadays, it's extremely important to recognise that they feel that they have a voice and they feel that there are things they can be doing about the issues that they're concerned with. Okay, and so can you talk a little bit about how COP26 in your hands fits into the wider work that Sky Kids is doing to help generate children on on important issues through its programming? It's definitely part of a wider programme across Sky. We do lots of programming to raise awareness of just the importance of looking after the planet for the next generation. We've got an awful lot of responsibility as programme makers and, and as citizens ourselves to do what we can to protect the planet. And I think what we try and do at Sky Kids as we're commissioning is we want shows that are inspiring and exciting and engaging. So we've commissioned a few things recently which sort of fall into this. One of them is called Obkey, which was a series of very beautifully animated CG shorts about a little alien who's becoming aware of some of issues like microplastics, not eating meat all the time and all of those sorts of themes. And that's really fun. It's informative, but it's really, really entertaining. And because it's written with a real comedy eye and it's beautifully animated, we've had huge success with that one. And that's, again, we did that in conjunction with Sky Zero. So it's very kind of punchy information, but it's delivered in a way that kids can find palatable. And again, where they can take it on and think, oh, actually, that's something I could do. And then we've done another series recently, an educational series called Wonder Wraps, which we launched this week, which uh, we'd come across a teacher who had realised that some children learn really well through song and can remember song lyrics. And I can remember this from... My own childhood, I could always remember jingles, but I could never remember lessons. So we have worked with him to create um, a series of um, music videos, essentially, but they cover all the key stage two topics that children have to learn about from volcanoes to climate change to digestion. But it's done in a way that the information is absolutely right and accurate, but it's done in a really accessible, fun way that kids can remember. And so what's next then in, in the climate space for Sky Kids? Can you talk Talk about anything else that you've got coming up? We've got a few things coming up and lots that we're considering. It will be a recurring theme through FYI, the weekly news show. And we have had a project called, um, as part of FYI, called I Don't Get It, where we take a deeper dive into some of the issues, like little mini documentaries, I suppose. So we'll continue to cover climate change in that form. But we will, as I say, we'll also be really aware of it whenever we're commissioning something. Um, not only is the production carbon neutral itself and is that are we planning it and executing it in a way that's carbon neutral but are we sort of planting those seeds in the narrative and in the scripts and in the performances where we can hopefully nudge a bit of behavior and expand everybody's understanding of the issues without it being always a documentary or an educational show. Netherlands and UK-based factual specialist Off the Fence, the producer-distributor behind projects including the award-winning documentary My Octopus Teacher, recently opened its first office in Toronto. The launch, led by Director of Commercial and Business Affairs Emilda Wiebers, came eight months after former sales chief Bo Steemeyer returned to the ZDF Enterprises owned company as chief executive after five years with Red Arrow Studios International. 
Steemeyer and Weber's spoke to Jordan Pinto about the goals of the Canadian outpost, how it fits into the company's broader global strategy and their plans moving forward. Owen Imelda, really appreciate you making time for us. It was really interesting news that Off The Fence is going to be establishing a Canadian office. Um, so let's start with first, first things first. Why was now the right time to establish a Canadian office? And why was Toronto uh, the right place to set up shop? Um, well, Toronto um, is uh, one of the, the main hubs of television in uh, in the North American market, uh, and specifically in Canada. And uh, yeah, our company has, um, has always... Uh, been flexible and embrace growth, and um, we always wanted to. We always had the the core value to seize opportunities that would foster growth. So, especially in uh, the past, uh, I want to say five years, we've had a lot of steady and recurring business coming from Canada, uh, and now with being on the ground, um, we want to expand and work closer with our existing business partners. But also, we want to very much uh, forge new business in Canada uh, and Toronto specifically, uh, because, like I said, um, it's the main hub. For television here and i think i think now is i joined the company again in january so I, I spent the first couple of months analyzing the business and i could see that in the industry the industry that we are right now we're seeing it's like unprecedented times there's so much change going on so i really looked at like what part of off the fence is really solid and is re and what business and what revenue line items are reoccurring and canada was a clear one for us because the programming that we acquire and co-finance and produce is a perfect fit for the canadian market and as the times that we're in are so strange, I um, thought it's really important to build infrastructure around that, those parts of the business that are flourishing anyway and are actually showing growth. And so as we, you know, I think six months in, we sat down and we looked at, look, the Canadian market has always been very kind to us and the industry is really changing and you have to invest into the infrastructures and the markets that have been kind to you. So with our, as Imelda already said, with our sort of very flexible approach, we thought, well, we should really sort of bed down and get closer to the community, the broadcasting community, as well as the production community to see how we can add even more value to the market. If I can ask a follow-up question about the, I suppose, the nature of the, the things that will be going on in the Toronto office, um, do you see this as more of a production play or is this, do you see it as a kind of distribution and sales office or kind of a bit of both? Yeah, I would say um, a bit of both, but at the moment and in the near, near future, um, the low-hanging fruit is to focus on co-finance financing and investing. Yeah, we already have a few co-financing and first look deals in place with Canadian production companies. So for the first period, we will want to focus on um, working with our uh, existing partners. Uh, but now with being on the ground, it, there's also the intention to bring more structure to that and also to help them with international co-financing. Uh, we want to work faster. We want to work closer. Yeah, just to really make it more uh, of a, an easier collaboration uh, with the Canadian uh, partners that we have. And, and because the, park, the, the market is so fractured, right, and you know the Canadian market, it's sort of these big, big companies like Discovery sort of sitting on their content because they're turning themselves into streamers. So the, the, the usual programming supplies that these channels used to enjoy are all broken, right? So how our plan is to go in with the, the existing business that we have, but also kind of go... How, how can we, as a content service provider, help you get good programming on air? 
And that can be a range from like finished programs to actually, you know, co-production, but also uh, we believe being now a Canadian entity for the smaller channels who don't have that much budget, they could come in at pre-sale levels and is a much, we're in a much stronger position to uh, trade and barter more holistically. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, the first conversations we had, there was a lot of interest because, you know, budgets are tight. I also wanted to add that uh, because you were also asking about uh, production. So yes, um, for the future, we also foresee ourselves as we are working with uh, production companies and their IDs. Uh, we also eventually think that we will go more into the physical production side of things uh, where we would be uh, executive producing. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities and uh, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising to us if in the next year or two, there might be more of a physical production presence as well. Of course, that also very much depends on uh, what the the market allows us to do but yeah we are we are here and uh, we want to be here and we're more than willing to embrace any uh, yeah that part of the business as well and and, and the, the physical production can be owned but we can also joint venture with other ones because as you know a lot of the canadian tax breaks you can only access if your headquarters is in, in canada and this is always going to be a satellite office so um we're you know very keen to be partnering up with other production companies especially within one of our strongest suits which is natural history and and, you know, Canada is breathtaking. So natural history, CanCon, I, I guarantee there is there are deals ahead of us. Aside from the Canadian piece of this, do, do you see this as a broader um, North American play, you know, bringing in the US market too? Or do you see this more as focused on how, I suppose, the complementary nature of what off the fence and the Canadian market can uh, bring to one another? I think it's um, because the American market is so unique and it trades in mostly in original. I think we will, we will be looking out, out for the US market more from our sort of Bristol office where our original team sits. Um, of course, you know, it's an English-speaking market, so there will be spillover. But we're really going in with the sort of the local and regionality of it, especially the French side and the English side. And because we're doing the same being based out of Amsterdam, we're covering the German and French market. And we're really interested in sort of bringing these local communities back together again, rather than, you know, within the smaller production budgets of like 150 to 300,000 per hour and really bringing, you know, factual back again and sort of the, the, these fractured uh, programming supply chains, which are broken. And how can we stitch them back together? together again. And I think that can only really be done in a regional way. And that's why also Toronto, because it's a, it's a patchwork uh, a network of, of um, producers and broadcasters. How big do you envision the Toronto team being eventually? Like, is the plan to bring on other Toronto-based personnel or, or will you keep it as just yourself for the moment, Imelda? The aim is definitely uh, to grow our team as well, um, to build, uh, yeah, to hire more local employees. But at the moment, uh, as we are still very much at the, the beginning stages of this, um, yeah, at the moment it will be me. Um, but yeah, over the, the next couple of, hopefully months, but maybe uh, within the next year, uh, we definitely would like to uh, hire more people. I think it's really it's really important these days that when you're setting up offices or businesses that you, you enter a market by listening to see how can I add to this community and just by coming in with a very you know stern business plan and we're going to do this, you can be as successful than coming in listening. Yeah, I know you, you touched a bit on this already, Bo, but the, pa the pandemic, did it delay? Did it delay your plans to establish this office or maybe it accelerated um, some of the ways you thought about the business and accelerated your desire to set up this Canadian office? A bit of both, actually. It sort of sped it up 
because during the pandemic, less was being produced. So there was less programming available for us to invest into. So getting our boots on the ground faster, it was really important to get to know the development slates and these producers earlier so we can help shape development slates and deals. But at the same time, maybe over to Imelda, it also delayed us, right? Yes, it did. It's, it, of course, we couldn't be here uh, physically because of the pandemic. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's been quite a, a rough journey for the market as a whole, uh, international market as a whole. Uh, and I think that when it comes to acquiring content uh, during the pandemic, uh, it's been really hard for uh, different uh, buyers of content, uh, but also, of course, for the suppliers of content. Uh, and uh, yeah, we are now, um, yeah, the world is kind of opening up again and we are now also here. So now we have, we can seize the opportunities to um, yeah, build the programming supply pipelines again. So yeah, that's something that we definitely expect to assist right now as we are in the well not in, I wouldn't say the post pandemic phase but it, the world is opening up more and uh, now being in Canada that will also very much help with that and I think a little bit um, what also expedited our journey is hearing how uh, you know the Canadian market uh, won its quota wars with Netflix so how you, you the new streamers coming in I think there is a lot of production opportunities ahead of us yeah and also and that is just not only because of uh, corona but in general how people acquire and finance programming has totally changed uh, in recent years in comparison to how it was traditionally so uh, um, it's it's something that can only accelerate even more now that we are at this stage. Uh, I know Off the Fence always has you know lots in production at any one time, but of the announced shows, could, can, for people that mightn't know exactly what you've got kind of on the slate at the moment, could you just talk a bit about some of the some of the shows that are some of the biggest shows that you have on the go right now? Um, so right now, um, one of the biggest uh, shows that we're working on is called La Dato Si which is uh, a YouTube original. It's a feature doc about, uh, we've got access to the Pope and his message uh, to Mother Earth and how we all need to pull together. And it's an epic production with a production budget over 3 million uh, shot all over the world. And I think it was like three years in the making and we've just filmed the Pope and now we are in post. That's a very exciting uh, production that we've got. We are bringing uh, a two-parter about Vikings to the market. We're co-finding Financing another show about the queens of Egypt. The ancient history is, is really up and coming. Uh, also, science is an area that we are really keen to be investing into, and it's especially coming to Canada. Science and technology is a genre that we, we have tabled. Um, I also should say congratulations on the Oscar win for um, my, my octopus teacher. How great was that to, to, to win that award, and what does it mean for the company? I mean, it's, it's a total game changer, right? And when, when you work in natural history, mammals rate big mammals rate and, it, and you know whenever an animal or you have an animal in a show that doesn't really have a proper face like reptiles and insects and octopus they actually don't get get seen much so it's actually quite difficult to pitch an octopus film and to pitch an octopus film to a streamer is even harder and uh, thanks to Netflix really pushing it and running with it it was a phenomenal achievement for the company but it's also you know for this little octopus to tell the entire world her story um, it's just you know it's, uh, it is phenomenal yeah I, well, I know in Canada it was a project that a lot of people anecdotally were, were talking about and loved so yeah congrats um, a question for you Bo um, so you spent five years as president of Red 
Red Arrow Studios International before returning to Off the Fence. Yeah, could, could you talk a bit about re- returning to the company um, so early in, in the pandemic or during the pandemic? And then what some of the experiences and insights you gained um, while working with Red Arrow that, that you brought back to Off the Fence? I touched on it earlier a little bit that when um, sitting within Red Arrow Studios International, but also Red Arrow Studios as a whole, I had the luxury of seeing the entire global marketplace through the business of formats and factual and dramas and TV movies. I had a real holistic view of what was going on in the market. And I could really sense that the scripted bubble was getting closer and closer to bursting. And at the same time, I could see how you know, non-scripted and specific factual, specialist factual was really underfinanced, really underloved, you know, and it's, which I found very strange because factual, although it might not be the rating machine, it's a very rock solid way to schedule your network. And I was, as I was sitting there looking at this specific genre, I was like, it's showing signs to sort of recorrect its waves. And I think now is the time to come back and really, as I said earlier, it's a fractured market. And how do you put that plumbing back together again, this program support? and have these financing patchworks. And I could see that drama was, was, was not doing that well. And I could see that the world, especially with the pandemic, but also because of global warming, people were sort of very information hungry. And they were also because of fake news and people are leaning to specialist factual to learn. They want to understand. And I thought it was a perfect timing for, for me to come back. Also, you know, the way you finance drama is very, very interesting. And I thought there's a lot of intelligence there that could be brought back to factual. So with that, we came up with our new strategy of originals, studio and fast. And when you come through it, sometimes it can, the deal structures can feel very scripted because it's, it's much more agile than factual used to be. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been back now for nine months and put our feet on the gas paddle and we're still going. I think as, as Imelda already said that we're coming in in the first instance to work with the production community and the, the, the broadcasters that we that know us already and definitely you know knock on our doors for ancient history and science and technology i think we have a very big appetite there and that's it really yeah it's it's really exciting to be here and to uh yeah just um not only continue with what we've already established but to also really tap into the new aspects uh of the the the, the business the factual content based business that uh, thus far we haven't maybe fully explored uh, but now being in canada that is uh, really something that we are looking forward to dive into. Beta Filmbank, Netherlands-based Lineup Industries, is the distributor of shows including Long Lost Family, the UK relative tracking factual entertainment format recently picked up by Danish pubcaster DR, following deals secured in the US, Australia, Israel and many more. Co-founders Ed Lewers and Julian Curtis were among those in Cannes last week for the return of MIPCOM after a two-year hiatus and spoke there to Ed Waller about how the market has changed in the interim and the trends they see coming out of it. Joining me today is Ed Lewers, CEO and co-founder of Lineup Industries, and Julian Curtis, the COO and co-founder of Lineup Industries. First question, we're here in Cannes. Tell us what your feelings are about the state of the market, Ed. Yeah, it's opening up again. It's very clearly there's more and more business that's all happening. It was a bit dead a year ago, of course, across the board. Uh, but people are uh, interested in new shows. Uh, yeah. So and I think people want to freshen up uh, their, um, their schedules. And I think you know what we had in, in, in the pandemic time was renewals of existing brands, especially the bigger brands, the long-lost families and so on of, of the world. 
and now we're seeing that people are looking at something new and I think uh, especially the linear channels looking to freshen up looking for something you know new and exciting that's good and obviously as you say two years since the last last mitcom a lot's happened since then let's start with the elephant in the room the impact of covid on the production pipeline and, and the formats business itself which is the sector that you guys are in what's been the impact of, of that prolonged period of lockdown on the demand for unscripted formats would you say julian well i think it's um really an echo of what we just said that that actually um new things were very difficult to launch unless they had some big breakout hits somewhere so um, less experimental and just the the very fact of covid makes certain shows almost impossible to produce like a long lost family which requires international travel they've pared that down in the uk where it's mostly local stories or they've teamed up with actually teams from across the world to go and do their shooting for them um, which which is a bit different but launching new shows was just uh, near impossible and the idea of pitching on Zoom makes the idea of selling certain shows near impossible as well. So we picked up, uh, for instance, uh, just before the first lockdown, we did a deal with NHK for some formats which are, are unusual and a little bit uh, out there. And uh, pitching those on Zoom, as it turned out, was just near impossible. So now face to face, we find that we can really get into the meat of what the show is, what makes it tick, and, and, and get across that initial sort of skepticism that you see when you see a, a Japanese show, which I think a lot of people think, you know, it's culturally a little bit difficult to, to absorb, let's say. And so um, putting it out there and, and just discussing it and, and being able to do that face to face, and when you see that the buyer is having second thoughts about what you've just said and what they've just looked at, you can kind of reassure them and, and, and maybe talk them through the idea a bit more. So. Uh, that's, I think, but you know, for us, I think the big change was that um, we very quickly realized that, that pitching shows on Zoom wasn't going to work for us, and maybe work for some. Um, technically, it didn't work. Uh, you don't know what somebody else's internet speed at home is like, or, or whether their kids are, you know, demanding a sandwich or whatever it is. So we thought that, that we would have to try and adapt how we did those pitches uh, on Zoom. And that's how we created uh, the line update, which we've done now for the third time. And new formats is being pitched, being pitched by my dear colleague Julian. And we film it in a green screen studio. Fast. Uh, every film is about nine to ten minutes, not longer. And the goods, what we like, the feedback that we get is that the buyers really like it because they can see it, you know, when they have the time with the morning cup of coffee, whatever. And the other big upside is that they can forward it to their colleagues within the organization. And that's really important because then we still keep control of the pitch itself. Did you find that during lockdown, because so many companies obviously couldn't produce us, so they spent a lot of time developing their own ideas and therefore came out of the market, came out of the, the lockdown with a whole load of ideas and didn't need to buy them from uh, the international market? Funny enough, the producers that we have spoken with have been extremely busy very busy and they did not have that much time to develop so there was a lot of demand i'm not saying that the budgets were fantastic but from what we heard uh, and that's across europe that that, that this really was a lot of demand and last minutes uh, or existing shows that needed to have more episodes which were you know it was possible to produce during lockdown so, so i think the creative output has not been that good yet no i think that, that needs to step up yeah another 
kind of side thing speaks a bit to your point is uh, on the development side is that we've also been asked more and more to bring things to market at an earlier stage of development. I think especially with people who are trying to secure global rights, which is a different topic of conversation <laughs> completely, but um, we're being asked to, to, to bring in things at an earlier stage because I think some broadcasters want to be involved in that co-development of that stage and they see something which is attractive to them, works for their audience, is great, but they also want to be involved in that and that there could be commercial reasons for that and, and, and all sorts of other uh, reasons. But it does mean that, that some of that development work, we're not even waiting for it to be on air, which typically we would never, I think two years ago, wouldn't have crossed our mind to bring a show to a market and to pitch it widely to people if it hadn't been on air and didn't have ratings. Um, whereas now, people are actually very open to that. Yeah. So demand for paper formats, basically. Well, we haven't quite so gone to the paper format yet. We still film something, we still have a pilot, we still have development, or, or it's been something that has existed under a different form, or maybe there's a new tone to it, maybe there's a different way of doing the same thing. But, you know, certainly um, there's a shift in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. But we wouldn't pitch paper formats to the wide market anyway. Right. Obviously, uh, it hasn't just been about COVID the last 18 months or whatever, the boom in streaming. Tell us Ed, the impact of, of that on the demand for unscripted formats. It was already happening, I think. It's, it's, it's not like it was, it started years before. If you look at Scandinavia, it was already uh, yeah. eight, nine, ten years it was happening. Mm. And, but now you also see it in Belgium. We spoke with the Belgian uh, channel the other day. and it's, it's really a lot. They they gone down in the ratings, the absolute numbers, by uh, fifteen to twenty percent. But that, that that's yeah. But I think and, us, and we're not. Sh you don't always know exactly where this is going yeah. because you know the data. Yeah, the data stays within the streaming companies, so you don't know who's really profiting from it. Yeah. Still, still, it's, it's not visible. But I'd say they're anyway still focused very much on dating and reality or celebrity-led shows, yeah. which is not really what we are doing. Um, and of course, our business model doesn't really match theirs. Uh, so I think, you know, in terms of working with streamers, that's that's work in progress, I would say. Cool. Going back to uh, Mipcom, um, how has it changed, you think? I mean, you've been here a couple of days now walking through the Palais around the Quasette. You know, there's, there's some big companies missing. What's the impact of some of the, the, the changes on the actual the, the market itself? But it's quieter. It's easier to book restaurants and stuff. But um, the beers are just as expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's got any cheaper. That much we can tell you after two days of being here. Uh, and, and the waiters haven't become any more welcoming either. But um, but but <laughs> so can itself doesn't seem to have changed a great deal. Um, although everything's being renovated. Um, but Look, I think I think you yeah. know the groups like the Bunny Jays, etc. They're organised. They have their acquisitions departments, so we we we're in constant contact with them. So in that respect, they you know we do the pitching, etc. Mm. Uh, it's yeah. just that this now we have a bit more time for the for the, you know the the, the the other companies, the smaller companies, etc. But there's actually more broadcasters here than I was expecting yes. to be. Yeah. Um, there are many more buyers, which kind of makes you think that they're here because they need to buy. Because why would you be here otherwise? Um, so. I think that that's the positive. Um, everyone seems very keen, but that's always the case at MEP, and then let's see how that distills after the next week or two, um, because, you know, everyone gets excited, don't they? Uh, so we'll, we'll see what that, you know, what the results of that are. But I think generally, um, it's actually quite nice. <laughs> it's not too bad, you know. I think it's just 
I think everyone's just delighted to be here and to be back face-to-face meetings and, and, and getting on with business. Um, we just have to, you know, remains to be seen how much of that really filters into real cash. Yeah. The uh, Obviously, the lack of the, the big boys, not obviously not because of uh, COVID, because although a lot of the Americans didn't fly, but the um, the fact that they strategically they don't need a market like this anymore because the the big production groups like Ben and Jerry Freeman, they know where those their IP is going to go around yep. the world, and the big studios they're keeping their shows for their own streamers. It, it seems to have been creating a, a nice environment for smaller guys, medium-sized yep. guys, perhaps like yourselves, to, to thrive and get a little bit more sort of airtime. If you see what I mean. Exactly, we are absolutely well. Yep. We're here yep. sat- chatting to you, you know. Uh, so we are getting a, a bit more airtime, I would say, and and I think. Look, you know, not everybody is working in those big groups and, and exactly what you say, the IP is, is now sort of hemmed in more and more. I mean, 12 more companies in, in the Nordics are now a part of the Fremantle stable. So, you know, that's another area. But, you know, they, they won't get all of the Fremantle IP, so they themselves are still going to need third party. Um, so, you know, in the end, we, we, we do get some airtime. And, you know, the, the big groups as well. For them not being here, they are still in London. They do still need third-party formats. They don't have everything, um, whilst they are still the huge machine. So you know, some of their, you know, some of their own smaller companies can get lost within that big machine, and they might need to get some 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 airtime themselves, which they might find with us and not internally. Um, Lineup Industries. What's the what's the what's the future for for your company over the next year or so? What's what's the what's the big plan? Can you start buying up companies like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> we have no intention. You know, we our background is that we we we've been within these big groups. We've worked at a studio. We worked at Endemol um, back in the day, uh, 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 and so we we've we've lived that life. You know, and and as you say, it's it's, it's perhaps a, a, and I don't mean this just for lineup industries, but other companies of our size. Maybe maybe now's our time to shine because everybody else is doing their own thing out of the spotlight and doing their own thing. You know, kind of almost all internally. So you know, maybe that's what it is. But but. Who knows? We don't even know if we'll be able to fly in night amongst time. So, you know, who can tell, really? Yeah, could be another lockdown just around the corner. Make, who knows? Make hay while the sun shines. Well, exactly. And the sun is shining. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's good to be here. Excellent. Yeah, also we will be looking at more synergies because, as you might know, uh, Betafilm is a shareholder in lineup. It's a big, one of the biggest uh, independent uh, distributors in Europe. So looking more, you know, in more into synergies there. They're also getting more into the entertainment. They started a new company, Broton Buta, which is a new uh, German producer. German, German producer. That's next to Seapoint. They started Data Spain. So there, you know, it's a very. Uh, it's not very. It's not a company, a strict company, strict organized like a Fremantle or Sony. It's more loose. It's more less fair. So you know, do your thing. Do what you're best at. And if you need help, then come to us. So from that respect, also there we're going to do a little bit more, yes. The other thing is we also, uh, we we work a lot with public broadcasters who themselves don't necessarily have international departments or really spend too much time looking internationally at formats or or indeed selling them. And and, uh, well, uh, like our NHK titles, that came from us going and doing some consulting for them on their catalogue and what what was it that they were missing to sell and why were they not selling and, and how do you sell some of the shows they had, which is what, what we did. So I could see that there's probably more of that work to be done as well. 
um, which is another way for us to secure content. Of course. Yeah. It seems to be. I mean, everyone. Everyone. I mean, certain territories or regions become very hot, and Asia seems to be very hot at the moment, not just because of the mass singer and so forth. And and you've got yourself some some uh, Japanese IP uh, on the slate. Tell us the the changing demand for sort of uh, IP from the Far East. Well. Um, well, we're in a in a privileged position that that we built our relationship with NHK because they bought a format from us, um, which is a rare 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 thing to to happen. Um, so we had this format which originated in Belgium called Radio Gaga, which um, has been extremely successful in a certain number of territories. There's six seasons of it in, in Spain, for instance, and it's you know, multi award winning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we discussed that format with them. Well, almost by chance, really, um, which they ended up buying, and it ended up being a big success for them. Um, and it's NHK had very limited experience of buying formats, and I think through that whole experience, and, and I think we, um, yeah, we work for for companies, as I just said, you know, that don't have that international experience. So we kind of do a lot, quite a lot of hand holding, perhaps more than some other distributors. And uh, anyway, they they felt comfortable with working with us, and and so that's. That's how we ended up working with them, and then we sold them another format uh, uh, called Emergency Call, um, which will be coming soon. Um, and yeah, so so I think in terms of our relationship out in Asia, you know, um, I was based there for three years, um, so we kind of understand it well. But um, you know, I, I think NHK is is probably our main client and source of IP from there, and you know. Uh, Fanny J and everybody else are, you know, spending quite a lot of time in Seoul, I expect, so um, we'll let them do that. <laughs> and uh, Ed, just going back to these synergies that you mentioned uh, with your parent company, tell us about how they might uh, materialize and what well, form they might It can be investment, it can be, you know, on the development side, uh, it can be on the sales side. So, uh, because we both have been pretty busy, but uh, now uh, I think the time is there to step up a bit, yes. Okay, well, I think uh, I've used up enough of time, so um, I'll let you get back to the coal face of selling. Uh, here we are in Cannes, that's what you came here to do, not speak to C21, but I thank you for doing so. Thanks very much, Ed and Julian. Thank you very thank much you. for having us, and uh, yeah, we'll get back to it. Chris Phillip is president of Starlings Television, the division set up two years ago by US film financing and production company Starlings Entertainment. The unit is behind drama series including Pandora for The CW and Departure for NBC Universal's Peacock. Philip was also in Cannes last week for MIPCOM where he spoke to Ed Waller about how the business has navigated the pandemic and the way the industry has shifted in the meantime, particularly with the proliferation of streamers. So I'm here with Chris Phillip, president of Starlings Television and exec producer. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Pleasure. So we're at MIPCOM, uh, the first MIPCOM in two years. Give us a little, give us your take on the state of the market. Well, you know, it's great to see everybody again in person. Zoom's become a little tiring. <laughs> and I think it's um, it was time for people to feel the handshake and the hug and have a rosé on the croisette and actually talk about the business that they've been, you know, kind of talking about for two years. Uh, I think a lot of deals were done during COVID, but here it really advanced the stages because at the end of the day, people want to be in front of people with the trust, the handshake, the eye-to-eye -eye contact, because when you invest in programming, you're buying programming, you want to know that they're delivering and your deal is safe, 
and the production is explained in person. So it's obviously two years since the last MIPCOM. Uh, a lot has happened since then. We've had COVID, we've had streaming, we've had all kinds of things. How's the business changed in that intervening period since the last MIPCOM, would you say? Well, during COVID, we were able to produce second seasons of our two hit shows. One of them is Pandora uh, at CW and Departure on Peacock. We're also now in third seasons on both of them. So we didn't stop on the shows. There were challenges, there were obstacles, but we delivered and produced. Um, I think the market here at MIPCOM, right, uh, has changed in that you can do hour-long meetings, you can take your time, there's no more half-hour running, everyone's 10 minutes late, so you have 20 minutes to talk about business. People had more time, and that was wonderful to see people and actually have substantial conversations about what you've been doing. I also think that, you know, it feels almost like MIPCOM 30 years ago. Obviously, the streaming boom that's taken off uh, in the last couple of years, what kind of opportunities has that provided a company like yourself? Well, you know, the streamers in the U.S. have obviously uh, expanded globally and they've been buying quite a bit. Um, what's interesting is the appetite from the local streamers that are launching to compete or complement the bigger global brands, but they need content. They're doing local language, but they always want American content. Now, how do you buy American content where the license fees have always been quite high when a studio is selling it? They don't have the budgets for that type of product. So, you know, we're kind of looking at making shows, trimming the fat with the biggest showrunners around the world, great talent, giving them the bang for their buck, but making shows that can really go into production with four or five streamers, local streamers around the world, a collection, a pastiche of some of these startups that need content. And collectively, it gives us enough money to go into production. The upside would be either selling back into the US and of course selling the rest of the territories that are open. But we are doing that with Sherlock's daughter, which has um, a great showrunner named James Duff, who did The Closer and Major Crimes. A writer created the show called Brendan Foley, who has a couple of hit shows um, right now on some of the streamers. Um, another show is Victorious. We have the writer of 300 and the producer-director of Spartacus. That's a female gladiator series, scripted. Um, and we're able to make these shows where these are partners. They're not asking for the scale, you know, that they normally have. They're looking at the upside of international, the opportunity. What they care about is, is it going to get made? Not how much money can I make in one quick deal, because it's probably not going to get made. They look at the long term, and they see the global strategy of all these local streamers that need content. How do you get to all of them? You need a distributor. Now, we haven't distributed. Uh, my background is obviously distribution, and I, 10 years ago, just dedicated to creating content and partnering with distributors 
that can take it to all of these streamers. So I'm here at MIP really presenting these shows, explaining how the productions work and who the talent attached are and, you know, really building a case. Now, it's marrying all of these great opportunities in production with the demand from all these local streamers. And, you know, the big question is, who's the first network in? Right? They all want to know who's the first network. And if they want a big U.S. network in on these local kind of productions, it would be something that um, they wouldn't have the rights to internationally. The studio would sell it. So it's offering them an opportunity to acquire on a pre-sale basis, show that they would probably buy anyway later, but they may not be able to buy it if a studio is selling it and putting it on their local AVOD or SBOD brands that are global. So the market has changed where the demand is high for all of the local SBOD and AVODs around the world that have launched. It's how do you aggregate them all and give them the confidence that these shows don't have a huge brand attached in the US but they have creative input they have cast approval and the showrunners we're working with have delivered great content over the years so when you give them the creative approvals and the license to develop the projects then it's worth it for them to come on early and um, you know, really, it, 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 the demand is there. It's explaining the model because everybody has a boss and everybody has to justify a certain number, you know. But it, uh, at the end of the day, it really comes down to, to having a distributor partner, having a couple of anchor broadcasters on early and, um, and sell back into the U.S. or there are many platforms that offer a license fee deal that don't have the global reach yet and they're fine with just buying it for the U.S. Now, you know, the Netflix, the Amazons, the Disney Plus, you know, they offer great deals. We do them all the time if, if, if we could. Um, I think this alternative is an interesting opportunity for these startup AVOD and SVODs. I think that's one of the, the things about this market is the absence of those big studios uh, because they're retaining their own content for their own services and purposes. Uh, and that would you say that's creating an opportunity because there's obviously still demand for American content in the, around the world and that's providing an opportunity for companies like yourself to get in there and as you say sew together this sort of deal with a lot of these local streamers? Yeah, I mean, the absence of the major studios here doesn't have any impact on us. Uh, it's a market that is a great market. The right buyers are here. But I think the model is self-sustaining where, you know, once the networks, these streamers, networks, these, these brands start to grow and they want to take on more territories, it means higher license fees in the respective countries that they're expanding into. So some of these have one country, two countries, they're expanding into 17 countries, you know, 20 countries. So there is 
a license fee associated with each of these countries, right? And they understand that it will cost more as they as they grow. But I think that the studios not being here definitely makes a more impactful meeting where I can explain the strategy, right? But the studios don't always sell if they have a local brand in that marketplace in that country. They don't sell to the to the new uh, to the new streamer. They put it on their own brand. So the model is self-sustaining. How long it lasts? I think every SVOD and AVOD platform that's owned by a telecom or a local studio has plans to expand and grow all across the world. But there's a period of transition where they have to be um, conscious of how much they're spending. And if you put a French platform together with a Scandi platform together with a Central Eastern European linear channel, you know, you could go into production on projects. And if you have some deficit to be able to, to carry that, that, that gap, um, in the long run, you know, the distributor will make certain numbers and targets around the world in the other territories. We like to keep the U.S. rights and do our deals directly with the, with the networks. But um, the model of license fee in the U.S. is still very much alive. They don't need to own and control the world. Um, but, you know, I think the, the market here in particular, I saw a lot of independent scripted content, more than I've ever seen before, with budgets that I've never thought possible. And they make it work. And I think people are very excited about Netflix really changed the way the international marketplace looks at local language content where a family can sit and watch a foreign language show and be just as riveted as they would be with Sopranos or Game of Thrones. And, the, you know, social media has picked up on these local language shows. And the budgets are nothing near what those other shows cost. Yet they have the same social media impact and the same, you know, um, success. So the economics have changed. The appetite has grown. And I think the model has adjusted to allow independent television scripted productions to really make an impact if handled the right way. As long as the collection and the pastiche of networks trust and come on together, they can all have great independent content. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.